we are rounding out the Halloween episodes. This is the third one, Halloween Forensics uh, Episode 3. And um, we're going to talk mainly about body parts today and uh, exhumed bodies are going to be the kind of the main idea. And, uh, you know, last time we talked mostly about bugs and a little bit about decomposition. Decomposition is actually such a huge topic that I don't feel that even one episode of a podcast can really, um, you know, give it its due time and certainly not a, what I call these episodes are sampler platter episodes where I talk just a little bit about each topic and then you can kind of get an idea of how in future episodes and future seasons I'm going to, uh, some of the things I'm going to address. And so uh, today we're going to start out, um, usually I do like a recap. There weren't really any questions from the last episode. I feel like uh, there were more uh, comments than anything. People who were, you know, horrified about, you know, warm dead bodies, um, uh, horrified about the various uh, bugs and spiders and things like that. And of course, the very odd story I told about the guy just standing in the morgue, uh, you know, just with the bodies, um, still puzzles me to this day. But, uh, you know, I guess, I guess that's, uh, what he was, uh, into at the time. So, um, also going to talk about, uh, you know, usually I do kind of a recap, but don't really need to recap the last one. I don't think, um, I did want to make a, a quick statement that, um, my website, which is of course, knifeafterdeath.com has a little area where you can sign up for a weekly digest. And what that means is, you know, I send out like a little newsletter. So it'll be something like a case of the week, or it'll be maybe, an update on a project I'm working on, like if I'm writing a book or if I have maybe new videos on my YouTube channel or something like that. Um, I haven't gotten around to sending them out yet. Um, having a website and not having really any staff is kind of a little bit of a, you know, it's a, there's a lot to it. And, um, you know, I, I have been busy in my own actual work life. Unfortunately, uh, podcasting and talking about forensics and teaching forensics is not my job. I mean, it is part of my job when I'm, you know, doing an autopsy and somebody comes to visit. But um, this podcast is for now uh, kind of a side hobby for me. I actually still have to go work and um, do autopsies, and it's been very busy. In fact, I would say this October has been my busiest month um, in a year, maybe. So a lot of stuff going on. Uh, on that note, um, I had made a comment about how, and this was on my Instagram, um, people say, oh, well, you must be getting lots of suicides and lots of homicides. Well, I am getting a little more homicides in the last two months than I usually have. Uh, but suicides, of course, the question is, are you having more suicide cases because of the pandemic that's going on and people are getting depressed? People are getting, you know, sort of pandemic fatigue and then they're basically deciding to kill themselves or maybe they've had some kind of financial hardship and then they decide to kill themselves. But what I had commented was I actually had my one of my assistants um, 
at the main place where I work, ran the numbers, and it turns out suicide numbers are actually down for 2020 compared to the previous two or three years. And um, I don't really have a good theory, uh, I guess I should say hypothesis, on why that is uh, the case. In some areas around the country, and I had some people write me on Instagram and say, well, in our area, we have a lot of suicides. Uh, They're definitely increased. So people have said, well, what's your hypothesis? Um, I don't have one because it's probably random variation. In my area, there's not very much suicide this year. And in another area, it's increased. Um, I don't know if it's because maybe it's because in my area, the pandemic um, isn't Uh, maybe it hasn't hit as hard as other areas around the country, Um, although cases are rising where I am. But uh, I, I, you know, it's really hard to say. But in my own personal experience, and I cover a fairly large area, and I'm just one guy, so I do every autopsy that comes in. Um, Really, suicide numbers have been down, and I'm not sure I've even done one in the last six or seven weeks, um, which is kind of interesting. Although... Uh, I made that comment, and then immediately I got called and said, you know, that I have an autopsy for someone who committed suicide. So it's kind of like if you work in the ER or you work uh, somewhere and somebody says, oh, it's quiet, which is the worst possible thing you can say, because if somebody says that, then you're instantly going to trigger some kind of uh, mass casualty or something. So I had made this comment about how suicide is not, not seeing much of it, and then literally within 12 hours I got a call to go do a suicide autopsy. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Uh, We're going to first talk about body parts. And, you know, because, you know, these are the Halloween episodes and we're supposed to be talking about creepy and unusual, scary things. Um, So far, we've talked about bodies that are intact. I mean, even decomposed bodies are still intact for all practical purposes. Um... But what about body parts? I do think that this is a little worse when you open up a body bag and you're presented with part of a human being uh, or parts of a human being. And there are different scenarios in which that can occur. Um, a lot of people don't realize that because they they picture autopsy. They picture uh, you know a body laying there. Maybe it's somebody who's been shot or somebody who's had a heart attack. But the fact is any piece of organic tissue that is thought to be from a dead human is going to come to forensics. Now, it might be me. If it has soft tissue, um, it should definitely come to a forensic pathologist. And if it's just bones, the forensic anthropologist will get involved. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about forensic anthropology today. We're going to have to do a whole episode on that. And, um, you know, if I'm lucky, maybe I can even have a forensic anthro person to talk to Um, as a guest, you know, uh, but anyway, so what about body parts? Well, uh, again, there are accidental dismemberments and then there are purposeful dismemberments, which of course would be homicide. Um, I'm first going to talk a little bit about just generalized dismemberment from accidental cases, because I tend to see these a lot more than homicidal dismemberments, at least in, in my area. Um, so obviously we're talking about things that produce a great amount of force on the human body because it's quite difficult to actually tear off a limb or, or a head 
you know, I always we're talking about Halloween episodes and I know that you've probably been watching a lot of horror films for October and you'll see stuff like um, somebody like, you know, Jason from Friday the 13th has a machete and chop somebody's head off or chop somebody's arm off. It's actually quite difficult to chop uh, human tissue like that. And uh, of course, I I talked a little bit about this in the book that I wrote, and I'll talk about that book in, in just a little bit. But, you know, we have to consider that whether you're chopping a head or an arm or a leg, I mean, there's a bone in there, and the bone is extremely hard, and it takes a lot of force to go through that bone. And so simple chopping motions, uh, we don't see that. But what I am talking about for accidental dismemberments are things like um, what we would call shearing forces. So a shearing force is one in which things are basically pulled apart. So you have an arm that's ripped off or you have a head that's you know decapitated in an accident. And so one of the most um, dramatic first uh, experiences I had with this was a case um, where there was a guy who was on his bicycle and he was riding his bicycle on a very busy uh, road, a highway. Uh, it may have even been part of the interstate. And he was pedaling along, and uh, behind him comes, of course, a very high-speed vehicle, you know, one moving s- probably 70 miles per hour. Um, and for those of you not listening in the United States, I'm, I can't convert that in my head to kilometers uh, per hour, so you can... You can do the calculation. But suffice it to say, 70 miles per hour is about how fast you go on the interstate. Well, at any rate, um, this guy got hit from behind by a large vehicle. Um, It wasn't a semi, but I think it was a van, a service van of some kind. And he was ejected from his bicycle, but flipped backwards because of the the movement of the vehicle was uh, forward going 70 miles per hour. Um... And what happened is his body was flying backwards over the vehicle and it just so happened that his chin, right under his chin, got caught on the very top of the windshield and it just ripped his face off. Um, And so, and of course his body was knocked off into the, you know, the side of the road. So when I came to do an autopsy, I was presented with a, a bag and I opened the body bag and then there was a a body there that simply did not have a face and the face was in a plastic bag within the body bag. So um, what I had to do is I had to, you know, examine this face. Well, the interesting thing about it is the body had, the body and the face had very little trauma to it. Um, the vehicle was moving so fast, it just kind of uh, knocked him backwards off the bike. And like I said, it ripped his face right off. And so it was the the face and the front of the skull. So it's almost like it broke off the front of the skull and ejected the, the brain as well. The brain was completely ejected from the body. And so I was presented with this corpse that had an empty skull and everything was attached. And then there was a face in the bag. And the odd thing about this was the face looked completely normal. Like I said, no injuries. It just looked like a mask, really. And that was one of the most unusual uh, dismemberment cases I had, also because there was an investigating 
person there, an, an officer of some sort. Um, and he actually had this thing on tape because there was a, I think there was a, a local business that was sitting there and had a camera on top of it. And so they collected the um, camera footage from these businesses around there. And anyway, he, I actually saw, he showed me the the video of this happening. And, uh, you know, I'm not real keen on that. I mean, but when people have videos of the death, it actually tells you a lot about the case. I don't prefer to watch those videos. I mean, there used to be a series when I was younger and like you would go to the video store. Yes, there was video stores. It's not everything was streaming like it is now. And anyway, um, in this sort of special section, they would have uh, sort of the hyper-violent stuff. And there was a series called Faces of Death. I know there's a few people listening who's going to know exactly what that is when I say it. And anyway, it was a lot of these horrible accidents where people were actually getting killed. But apparently people like to watch these. I personally don't. Uh, you know, my job is is entrenched enough in violence uh, that I, I really am not a big fan of violence. People always ask me if I like violent uh, movies and things like that. And to tell you the truth, I, I really don't because I see enough of it at my job. I go to my job and it's a lot of times violent death. And I, I think I've got my fill. I don't really need to go, you know, uh, satisfy that fetish in another way. So um, at any rate, that was pretty unusual because usually when you have these traumatic deaths, um, you have a, so many injuries that sometimes it's almost not even recognized. It's barely recognizable as human. But in this case, it was a face in a plastic bag that looked like a mask. And so oh, what's more appropriate for this episode than that? Um, but yeah, so that one, that one was uh, probably one of the most dramatic cases because it wasn't even a decapitation. It was actually just a removal of the face uh, with ejection of the brain, of course. Now, what are other ways that we see dismemberment? Well, industrial machinery. So as a forensic pathologist, I have to do a lot of autopsies on work workplace-related deaths. And I talked about this in an earlier episode. But when somebody dies at work, you have to do an autopsy for, reg, you know, there's various regulations like um, the OSHA. You have to get an autopsy to, you know, for the OSHA report. But also because there's always a concern or a threat for a lawsuit. Uh, for instance, if the workplace was not providing uh, enough safety measures uh, for the particular worker and then the worker dies, then there's a potential for a lawsuit. So that's why I always have to autopsy people if they die at work, even if they die of a heart attack. I have to do it because um, one can never know if all of the details unless an autopsy is done. So unfortunately, I see a lot, I shouldn't say a lot, I mean, I probably have one a month or something, where somebody dies at work in some kind of industrial machinery. And it, it's variable. I mean, um, it can be um, farm-type machinery. By the way, farms are super dangerous. Um, the place where I live and work is a farming state. It's a farming community. And so we have farm-related deaths all year. And these are people, you know, getting run over by combines or getting caught in machinery 
and having their arms pulled off and things like that. So for those of you who may be in or around farms, please take care because uh, you can die pretty quickly. Um, I have had, um, and I've got, I do, the problem is I want to tell you about this, but I also don't want to get ultra specific on uh, this particular type of machinery or this particular type of uh permutation to the body because if i get too specific on that it's kind of like revealing uh case details of of one specific um person and i really don't want to do that but the idea is that um there's a lot of these type deaths where the body is either crushed uh or ripped apart and the shearing forces will sometimes um, you know, it, it will tear the arms and legs from the trunk and will sometimes decapitate. Uh, sometimes you'll have a crushing force that forces, um, you know, the organs into a part of the body where they shouldn't be. For instance, uh, once I was, uh, doing one of these cases and, and let's just say a very, very heavy vehicle, um, and by heavy, I'm not talking about a car or a truck. I mean, it was it was a much heavier vehicle, um, which weighs probably eight or ten times more than a car or truck. Um, kind of crushed a person. And what happened was it actually squeezed the contents of the chest in through the neck and out the top of the head. So that when I was examining the body, there was no brain inside the brain case, the calvarium the skull. Those are all synonymous terms. But in fact, the lung was inside where the brain case should be. And there's uh, no great term for this, but in terms of the force that is applied and the result, it was a little bit like a toothpaste tube being squeezed. You squeeze the toothpaste too hard, and of course the toothpaste comes out the top. Well, that's basically what happened in this particular case is a person was crushed and it squeezed their organs out the top of their head, but without rupturing the neck. Definitely. I've never seen that before. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, as a forensic pathologist, not only do you have to do these workplace deaths, they're quite gruesome sometimes. And you do have to sometimes take body parts and kind of approximate them back together with the body to figure out, well, what kind of injury happened? Was this a shearing injury? Was it a clean cut? Was it, um, you know, a crush injury? Was it a high speed injury? And so um, I think the most dramatic example in terms of dismemberments and then trying to put the puzzle back together was a plane crash case that I did. And, you know, there are always planes crashing. I know that anybody across uh, the country listening to this, um, a lot of people learn how to fly. They get a plane. And unfortunately, you see plane crashes in small planes all the time. I'm not talking about commercial airliners. That's a completely different ordeal. But um, forensic pathologists get their share of plane crashes. And so I had a high-speed, very high-speed plane crash um, at one time and the speed of course is not, um, I didn't see the final, uh, FAA report on that in terms of, uh, the, you know, uh, 
the actual physics of the accident. But suffice it to say, um, I did have one plane crash where there were uh, multiple passengers. And all of these passengers were um, completely dismembered. So that I went to do the case, and what I was presented with was six body bags full of body parts. And so the way that you do, and and I'll probably do an episode on mass casualty at some point, but really briefly, what that entailed was uh, myself and an assistant and a couple of other people helping out through the coroner's office, going through each bag and basically pulling out the body parts. So here's an arm, here's a leg, you know, here's a lung, here's a kidney, and basically trying to put them back together in in terms of figuring out who is who um because you know you know if if a vehicle went down you know who was in it and then it's important to get the body parts and the organs with the body that uh with the identified person sometimes you can't do that but what you can do is is you can look at areas that were that were torn that were ripped apart and then reapproximate them to see if they match up um you know you can't very well find a kidney laying in a cornfield and then say, aha, this must belong to so-and-so. You just do your best. And so what you do is you try to recreate each person if they're, if they're dismembered like that. And then, you know, at that point, then you can kind of reconstitute them. You get a, a sense for the physics of the accident based on the level of dismemberment and the expulsion of the organs from the body, the condition of the organs and then you can put them in their respective body bags and then the families can, you know, can know who's who. Now, of course, that's not possible. You'd have to DNA test every single organ to figure out what goes with what. But the reason why recovering all of that is important is because you have to figure out why the accident occurred. And sometimes pilot health might explain why the accident occurred. So in this particular case, it, that wasn't uh, a factor I think it was more of a weather factor. A lot of times these crashes are due to weather more than pilot error. But um, I did, in this case, find a heart. And in that heart, you know, then I go ahead and dissect the heart just like I do with any regular autopsy. Um, I don't just throw it in the bag and move on. I still dissect it anatomically like I've been trained for years and years. And there was a um, significant occlusion in the, you know, one of the coronary arteries for this uh particular heart that we found like laying in a cornfield and that's an important piece of information because you know and if that turns out to be the pilot's heart then is there some then the question becomes is did he have a cardiac event and then lost control of the plane and then the people that were in there didn't know how to bring the plane down safely um, that wasn't the case i'm merely giving you examples of how dismemberments and um these sort of disembowelment of, of organs all plays together with a mass casualty type thing. So certainly it's unusual, um, you know, because you're essentially putting, at this point, you're putting together a puzzle to figure out what goes with what. Um, so that is, uh, would be under the heading of accidental, all of these ones I've talked about. Um, but now what about homicidal dismemberments? Um, do, do we see that often? Well, no, not often. Um, you'll see, I mean, like, I, like I've said many times, my most common cause of death with homicide is gunshot wound. 
And second most common cause will be stabbing. And then third would be something like strangulation. So, uh, but occasionally you will find, uh, you'll have a coroner call you or a sheriff call you and they have an arm that they found in the river or they have a, you know, a head or something like that. And then of course the pathologist has to examine it and then decide, is, is this a foul play situation? And what I'm getting at is, is it a foul play situation or is it a case where someone has naturally maybe fallen in the river, drowned, and then animal activity has kind of, you know, ripped the corpse apart, Um, which would be more likely in areas where you have larger uh, carnivorous animals or fish, uh, things like sharks and things like that, but, uh, or bears. But no, um, as far as homicides go, um, I have had a few of these where there's been dismemberment. Um, the question is always, did the dismemberment occur before or after death? Um, was this an active process? Somebody was, you know, running around with a samurai sword chopping off limbs or was the body killed and then, uh, dismembered? And most often it's the latter. It's that somebody is killed in some other way and then the body is dismembered. So it's easier to get rid of. And, um, it's kind of, I mean, it's definitely interesting. I've received my share of, uh, like, uh, torsos that are found in rivers, um, a head every now and then, or, um, you know, uh, an extremity, like a foot. Now, again, um, I kind of say that to make it sound like, oh, it's kind of common, but believe me, it's not that common. Um, I don't want to say how frequent, because if I say that it's very infrequent, that means I'll get a cult and I'll have one tomorrow like that. So I don't want to trigger fate. But um, one of the things we do is when we are presented with a body part or um, a thing, you know, an item like a torso, you want to figure out, is there trauma here that explains the death? Um, are there stab wounds? Are there gunshot wounds and things like that? And I've had some tremendous cases where we've tried to, to solve the case, um, you know, looking at some of these injuries. Um, but unfortunately, um, some of these have been really hard to solve because you sometimes you don't even know who they are. It's just a mystery body in a river, uh, and we can't find anybody, any identification. Um, one of the things we do with dismemberments, though, is we look at the area that that where the dismemberment occurred, So is this an arm? Is this a leg? Is it a neck? And then what we do is we try to to see if there are um, anatomical clues into how it was dismembered. So does it look like a power saw was used? Does it look more like a hand saw was used? Um, And what you can do is, particularly with um, bone or cartilage, you can actually, sometimes you can see um, kind of the, you know, the cut surface. And then what you can do is if at some point in the future you have a, a possible suspect and a possible um, item that was used, let's say a power saw, you can compare um, body parts that were maybe found separately and then compare it to the type of saw mark that is made by that saw. So, you know, it's kind of a, a convoluted procedure and we can't always have all the body parts when we find these. I mean, a lot of times, like I said, it's a, it's found in a river most often. Uh, usually when people dismember bodies, they don't uh, bury just one single part. Usually bodies that are buried are usually intact because it's a lot of extra work. 
And I know that sounds silly because we're talking about, you know, somebody murdering somebody, but usually when somebody murders somebody in that way, they're just trying to get rid of the body as soon as quickly as they can so that um, they can, you know, try to get away with it. And so most often with buried bodies, I've, I've found that they're intact and bodies in water, uh, lakes and rivers and things like that sometimes will be dismembered. Now, most commonly when you find a body in water, it's neither. It's not even a homicide. It's somebody who's um, drowned and then their body is found, you know, seven, eight days later. Or it's somebody who, and this was a very common thing that I had for whatever reason in 2018, I had a lot of people who were on drugs who would then fall in the river or stumble into the water and drown while they were on drugs. I felt like I had so many of those cases. But of course, these don't uh, these don't end up as dismemberments, but they do decay rapidly in water. Again, we'll cover all that uh, process of decay in a, in a future episode. But I think that that covers mostly uh, what we want to talk about on dismemberments. The idea being that it's, it is very unusual. It is kind of creepy to open a body bag and then you've just got human body parts. And then two, trying to put the puzzle back together if you can. Um, so, you know, if you think you want to be a forensic pathologist, it's not all just autopsies looking for bullets or looking for heart attacks. I mean, sometimes you have to do these gruesome things and, uh, you know, kind of put bodies back together. And by the way, when I say put bodies back together, we don't sew them back together. We're basically approximating the pieces, so to say that this arm goes with this torso, this head goes with that torso, this leg goes with that foot, that sort of thing. Because ultimately, these bodies have to be given back to a family, and then they have their, you know, whatever funeral process they're going to have. Now, what else can we talk about today? We were going to talk about exhumations. Exhume, to exhume the body is to take it out of the ground. And for me, uh, I feel like in terms of what what do you find creepiest, Dr. Wolf, I think exhumations are, for me, the creepiest, particularly those in, that are already in caskets. Um, I'll explain why in a moment. I don't really have a good reason why. It's just that some, you know, it's like not having a favorite a food that's not your favorite or a, a something that turns you on or turns you off. It's, uh, it's just one of those things, a, a corpse, a body that's, that's in a casket is, is for some reason it bothers me. Um, speaking of food, I, I meant to say that I had a lot of people ask about fly eggs from the last episode. Remember I talked about fly eggs and I said, it's either like Parmesan cheese or it's like sawdust and that I prefer sawdust. Well, I had Parmesan cheese on my lunch today and I looked closely at it. And to me, it doesn't look like fly eggs. I don't know why people are calling this uh, Parmesan cheese because Parmesan is more granular. It's like little pieces, whereas fly eggs are more like um, they're sort of oblong, almost needle like. And you can imagine what sawdust looks like. Um, so anyway, a little aside there. But uh, if you didn't listen to the last episode, you might want to circle back and listen to that because I talk about... Um, you know, what flies and fly eggs and maggots in that process. And um, anyway, so back to exhumations. So there are really two uh, scenarios where we have an exhumed body. One is where a body part is found um, by on accident sometimes. Um, or, you know, for instance, if somebody is buried 
surreptitiously. Somebody's been murdered and they've been buried. Um, erosion occurs, animal activity occurs, and then you've got you know an arm or something or a bone that's that's found on top of the surface, and then the digging occurs and gets the body out. The second are exhumations uh, from, like I said before, people who have already been buried in in coffins and caskets and that we have to do autopsies. Yes, we have to do autopsies on both of those. So let's talk briefly about uh, the first, which would be kind of a natural exhumation of a body that has been buried, not inside of a container. So what you're picturing is, you know, when you've watched Forensic Files or one of these shows or even some of your your shows that are fiction where somebody kills someone, they drive way out into the woods or out into a cornfield, they dig a grave, usually a shallow grave, push the body in it, bury it, and then hope it never gets found. And there are probably an awful lot of bodies in the ground right now that are never found. But um, they do come to the surface. We do find them, and then we do have to have them exhumed uh, professionally. So one case um, which was pretty interesting to me, and this one has a lot of elements to it that I'll probably do as a case study at some time in the future. But uh, basically, there was a, a rural county where I live. Most of the counties where I live are rural, but um, we're talking like lots of you know farmhouses and and farms and cornfields, and really not much going on. And a farmer is, um, you know, he's got his dog because everybody's got their dog, and the dog comes and brings him something. You know, it's just like in the evening. I guess he's going to feed his dog. Dog comes, has something in his mouth and drops it at the farmer's foot and it turns out it's a hand and it's a forearm that this it is a human hand and forearm that this dog has so long story short in some sort of um you know interesting uh, telepathy communication between the dog and the human um the dog led the farmer to the area where he got the the hand and the the wrist from his forearm and when he got there, when the farmer got there, he saw that, in fact, the dog had dug a little bit uh, into the ground and there was a partial skeleton. It wasn't really a skeleton. There was still some soft tissue there, but uh, clearly a human body. So the farmer instantly calls police. Police comes out. Um, they call me kind of in the middle of the night and say there's going to be an exhumation. Um, but because this body is outside, what they have to do is... You know, the forensic pathologists, we don't go out there with shovels and dig them up and, you know, throw them in a cart and take them away. Um, if you're if you're in an area that has forensic anthropologists, you could be very lucky, like I am, and have very good forensic anthropologists. And so basically what they do is, is they take their time um, exhuming these bodies and they make all sorts of observations about the depth and the the condition of the soil and the, you know, the wildlife in the area, the bug life, um, just, you know, all of these like environmental um, variables that are kind of, you know, to give you a, a sense of, of the condition of where this body was buried. And of course, there's a lot of evidence with that. The reports can be very long and very detailed. And I don't participate in the exhumation. Usually it's a forensic anthropology team they get the body out, and then it comes to me in the body bag. A lot of times it's still covered in a lot of mud or dirt. And then at that point, I am charged with uh, an autopsy. 
I have to go ahead and, and autopsy the body. Now, there are really, you know, varying levels of autopsy you can do. Sometimes it's just a skeleton. And if it's just a skeleton, my purpose is simply to kind of look over everything, note what bones are there, what bones aren't there, which, by the way, forensic anthropologists are better at than pathologists. But, um, you know, are there what I'm looking for is sign are signs of injury. So if I'm presented with a skull, uh, then I'm looking for gunshot wounds. I'm looking for something that indicates maybe the person was bashed in the head, that sort of thing. Um, you know, you look at the teeth because obviously you can use dental records to do an identification. And then there are other bodies which are f- more freshly buried. Um, some of the bodies I've had have been buried, you know, a couple of days through a couple of months. And you'd be surprised at how good of condition a body can be in buried for a couple of months. I had one that was buried in the winter. And of course, it's cold in the winter, so it's well-preserved. And then I think we got the body out in the spring. I think it was uh, maybe not quite spring. It was kind of early March, maybe. And, you know, you really, there was a little bit of um, deformity of the face, uh, but there wasn't any bug activity because below a certain level of the ground, uh, I think it's about six inches or eight inches, something like that. You're not going to get um, the exposure of the body and you're not going to have a lot of bug activity such as um, on the surface, you're going to have flies laying eggs, maggots are going to form, then maggots devour the, the, the flesh. So I've done exhumations of bodies which have been buried a couple of months and they're in really pretty good condition. And on one of them, um, we were able to actually get liquid blood for toxicology. I don't know if anybody will believe that, but I have no reason to lie. I, I witnessed it myself. We put a needle into the heart and withdrew blood and we're able to send that for toxicology. Um, and it really probably what it was is it was, the person went into the ground and the ground froze and they were basically, you know, frozen in time until it started to thaw. So what do we do in that case? Well, you know, we have uh, organs and everything with body like that. So we do it like a regular autopsy. It just sometimes takes a little longer because they're caked with mud and we have to wash them off, but we have to be careful to preserve any evidence that we find. We have to be careful um, about injuries, things like, uh, one thing to note, and I didn't mention with the last one is, for instance, if you've got a gunshot wound or you've got, let's say, a knife wound, um, maggots love and bugs love to be in areas of injury first. So it's because there's they like uh, moist areas, like I mentioned. So if you have a gunshot wound or a knife wound, then you've got tissue exposed. And it's obviously it's a little bit wet there because there's going to be blood or there's going to be lymph. And so the flies and the maggots love that. So you have to be very careful when you examine these bodies to figure out, well, what is injury? Uh, is it a real injury or is this something that's been um, kind of, you know, eaten away by maggots? So, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily go into every case that I've done for uh, uh, these homicidal exhumations, but let's just say there's been there's been a few and um, you know varying conditions of the body. You always have to x-ray these bodies. And if you're lucky, you'll get a CT scan. If you live in a place that does CT scans, you're very lucky. It's very hard for me to get CT scans on dead bodies where I live because most hospitals don't want corpses to be brought in. You know, it's, it's, um, not ideal for them, especially when they're very smelly because there are patients in these hospitals and you don't want to be 
bringing de- decomposed bodies into a hospital, your uh, patient satisfaction scores are definitely going to go down on that. So um, what we do is, is we have a mobile x-ray unit who we call and they come and they do x-rays. And then we look at all the x-rays um, before we open the body because what we're looking for is we're looking for signs of gunshot wounds. We're looking for bullets, bullet jackets, we're looking for possible injuries to the body, so fractures of the arms and the legs and the skull and things like that that could explain a bullet passing through. Also, rarely, you'll find a knife tip. If somebody's been stabbing somebody, you'll find the knife tip broken off in the body. That's important for a couple of reasons, because if you can find the the knife itself that has a broken piece and then you recover the knife tip then you know you can match them together and that's a great piece of evidence for the eventual trial the other is if you've got a knife tip you don't want to be rummaging around in the body um, without knowing that it's there or you could cut yourself so that's why x-rays are really important in these exhumation cases and you know we'll talk a lot more about these in the future and probably dedicate at least an entire episode to the process of exhumation, how we go through getting identity on people. Because a lot of times, you know, like I said, we have to try to find DNA. We have to try to find, um, you know, uh, sometimes dental records if they have fillings or things in their teeth. Uh, because identity is one of the the number one things when it comes to getting an exhumed body. A lot of times the facial features are not intact very well. So you have to use other means. Now, what about bodies that are in coffins? Of course, this is sort of my kryptonite. I don't like these. Um, I don't really know anybody who likes these. I guess uh, if you like to autopsy bodies that have already been um, embalmed and buried, you are, yeah, you are definitely a special person. Um, It's not for me, though. So why do we do these? Well, sometimes what happens is... There will be a question about, well, I think maybe this person was murdered. Maybe it's a year later. It might be five years later. Um, and a family member will say, well, I've, or somebody else will say, I have uh, evidence or I have some, um, you know, kind of confession that somebody harmed this person and we need to, um, you know, do an autopsy and find out. And, you know, if there's credible reason for it, they will exhume the body. Another is, um, and I've had a couple of these are medical malpractice cases where somebody got buried, um, you know, after a death or something. Um, let's say it was after, you know, some kind of medical procedure or something. Time goes by and then they realize they didn't get an autopsy and they need an autopsy to prove or disprove that there was some kind of harm from a medical perspective. So I have had to do these for medical malpractice cases where, um, yeah, the body will be you have to bring the body up and you have to do a full autopsy. And so I know you're probably thinking, well, why Dr. Wolf are you so disturbed by bodies and coffins? Well, it's not that I'm, I don't know. I'm, I just, I'm not a big fan of breathing in all of that, uh, embalming fluid and you can still smell it. You can still sense it. Um, even if somebody has been buried for a couple of years. Um, secondly is when, tissues are embalmed, when human tissues are embalmed, and I'm assuming it's the same with, with animals as well. I mean, the, the point is human tissues are usually soft, but when you embalm them, they become fixed. Uh, embalming fluid contains, you know, um, methanol and formaldehyde and things like that. And these are meant to prevent the body from decaying. 
So what happens is the, the tissues are fixed. They're very firm. And when you try to do an autopsy on a body where the tissues are very firm, it is a very labor-intensive thing. I am usually exhausted after I do a case of an embalmed body. And then plus you've got the issue of all of this um, embalming fluid. So usually I wear um, a P100 mask when I do these. Um, and a P100, by the way, it looks a little bit like a gas mask. Um, it's not a full gas mask that you know filters out chemical agents and nuclear fallout and things like that. But it's mainly... Um, you know, it just helps you breathe a little bit better. You don't have to worry as much about microorganisms. Um, I still wear it during, you know, cases when I do uh, potential COVID cases. But definitely you have to gown up and, uh, a lot. You have to put a lot more uh, PPE on. Um, of course, in the time of, of a pandemic, we're always decked out in PPE anyway, so it doesn't really matter now. But the tissues are just not as pliable. So it's very difficult to do something like take the larynx out with the tongue um, together intact on a body that's been embalmed. So just from a technical perspective, I, I'm irritated at these cases, but I do them because that's I am trained to do it. People ask me to do them. They're just not my favorite. And the state of the body, I guess it's a little weird because you know this person has... They've died, they've had their funeral, family members and loved ones have come. They're in their their suit or their dress, they have their jewelry on, and this is the last way that anyone ever saw them. And then what we have to do is we have to take everything off and we have to be very neat about it. You know, you can't just cut somebody's suit off um, or somebody's dress or, you know, and then of course all of the jewelry and things like that. You need to... Um, take it off in a way that you can put it right back on or at least send it back to the funeral home for them to put it back on. Um, so it's a very time-intensive procedure. And then it's a labor-intensive procedure. And then, of course, there's the irritation of the, you know, the, the embalming fluid and things like that. So it's just a little creepy to think that, well, here's a person who's had their funeral. They've had their last rites. They've, they've had their service. Now they're buried. And then now I'm seeing them again. I'm the first person to lay eyes on them since they went in the ground and got buried under six feet of dirt. So it's a little bit of an unusual feeling. And, uh, you know, um, another thing is, this is the actual worst, is when the coffin itself leaks. And not all, I mean, coffins today, I imagine the technology uh, is really good. Um, I'm not a, I don't really know a lot about mortuary science. I know there's probably a lot of people listening who do. And, um, I know that the coffins of today are much better than they were, let's say 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And certainly beyond that, we're talking about getting in pine boxes and things like that. The point I'm making is that sometimes groundwater will leak into a coffin, um, you know, and, you'll see um, it won't necessarily be sopping wet in there, but what happens is is um, you'll get the formation of what's called adipocere. Adipocere, A-D-I-P-O-C-E-R-E, is a sort of fatty substance that forms when bodies are kind of in moist, wet, cold uh, areas, and of course that would definitely fit the uh, profile of a coffin being uh, dark, wet, and cold. And what happens is it's kind of a greasy gray-white um, 
mess that forms. And so the tissue itself starts to um, form all of this adipocere and it can really uh, form these interesting patterns and it can kind of envelop and it kind of melts away the tissue. You kind of um, lose appreciation for the how the body might look. The, the more adipocere that forms, you lose the anatomy. You don't see it as well. Um, I have done, uh, I done, let's see, I, I had one case where we had a body that was uh, buried um, almost five decades ago and took it out and it was really degenerated into mostly adipocere. And the only thing I can compare it to is, you know, in um, Star Wars, when Han Solo is put into carbonite and then he's in that big plate of carbonite and he's sort of, you can see him screaming. It's a little bit like that. It sort of feels like it just filled the bottom of the coffin. Um, the tissue kind of melted. It kind of formed what you would imagine to be like a big thick plate of adipocere and then the bones were embedded in that adipocere. So what I had to do is I had to take these very large knives. We're not talking about scalpels. We're talking about these huge blades and cut all of the adipocere away uh, in order to harvest the bones to give to the anthropologist. Now the adipocere was the consistency of rubber. So I had to basically carve all of this adipocere off the bones and give them to the forensic anthropologist, and then they do other procedures to melt away the tissue so that they can assess uh, the bones and get an idea for, um, you know, some of the various conditions they have, and they can make, uh, particularly if you don't know a gender, they can say, that, well, this is looks more like a female pelvis, or this looks like, you know, this kind of skull. Um, this particular case I'm talking about was a murder case, so we were trying to harvest uh, some tissue or some bone in order to get DNA so that we could try to um, find out a, uh, a better identity of the person because it was a, a Jane Doe. So, uh, so yeah, um, you know, buried bodies in coffins. That's my least favorite thing. I think it's the thing that creeps me out the most of all of the pathology stuff, except for maybe large wolf spiders inside of dead uh, you know, skeletons. Uh, that's pretty much a tie for me. Um, and then, you know, this is, uh, I don't really know that I have much else to say about uh, exhumed bodies uh, in this case, but definitely uh, this probably is a good place to stop for the, um, in terms of the discussion of some of the Halloween creepy forensics type stuff. Um, it would it would be a shame if I didn't plug my own book at this point. Um, most of you, many of you listening, know that last year I wrote a book um, about zombies. It was called the Handbook of Zombie Forensics and Medicine, and basically that book, which is available at Amazon.com, um, it goes through and kind of scientifically breaks down what a zombie apocalypse would look like. Um, from a medical perspective, from a forensics perspective, um, you know, best ways to kill a zombie and things like that using all this forensic uh, knowledge that I have. And um, it was kind of weird because I wrote this book with the the idea of, of building the zombie apocalypse like a regular, like a pandemic. And this was back in, I was writing it in August and September of 2019, and I was doing all this stuff about pandemics 
I released it in October 2019, uh, kind of at the end of October through November 2019. And um, again, it did pretty well. It's on Amazon.com. You know, at this point, uh, you can buy it maybe for a Christmas gift. So see, I'm kind of just doing an ad for myself right now. You have to, uh, you have to bear with me because why, you know, I didn't have any commercials today. So, um, so yeah, the handbook of zombie forensics and medicine, and then you can look that up on Amazon and you can let me know what you think about it if you haven't read it. And, um, my goal was to, was to write another book for this fall. I wanted to release a Halloween project every year. And so as it turned out this late summer and fall, what I did was, is I created the podcast. So that was my one creative thing for the year was to do my podcast where I could do a little bit of teaching and kind of talk about some of my experiences. And then hopefully things in 2021 will get back and I can start putting out more books and things like that. So um, to finish up, uh, if if you're just listening for the first time, my Instagram is called at anatomy and the dead. There's a underscore between each one. I have a second Instagram page, which is not quite as functional as the anatomy and the dead. And it is called knife after death, obviously, because that's the name of this podcast, YouTube channel also under the same name. And of course my website, knifeafterdeath.com. So next time we have a podcast, we're going to go ahead and talk about some regular forensic stuff, no specialty episodes on Halloween forensics because Halloween will be over. So if you have any special requests, of course, you can always measure, uh, message me and ask um, about some things you want to hear about. But the topics in forensics are nearly endless that you can go and talk about because we have to know every single way a person dies and every disease that you can imagine. So I've got some ideas on how I'm going to finish up season one. Um, But with that being said, I'm going to let you go, and happy Halloween, and I hope you all have an excellent weekend. Thank you.